take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts chapter 8. I know that's not our scripture passage this morning, but it's where we're going to start. Now Acts, for those of you who are familiar, is filled with many amazing stories. But one of the coolest, in my opinion, is that of the Ethiopian eunuch that we find in chapter 8. There, the Spirit of God has Philip, one of the early church leaders, meet a man on a desert road who, during his journey, was reading from the book of Isaiah. So, we're going to pick up in verse 28 of chapter 8 in Acts. Sorry, verse 30. It says, So Philip ran to the eunuch, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life was taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now we go on to learn that the eunuch believed and was baptized. And the reason we are beginning here with this passage is that the passage that the eunuch was reading from is taken from our text today. And we see that from the very earliest days of the church, it has been used to tell people the good news about Jesus. Our Old Testament text today was written several hundred years before Jesus, but it's all about Jesus. And my prayer this morning is that God would open our eyes as he did that of the Ethiopian eunuch so that we may clearly see Jesus in this scripture. So now, please turn back in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, and we're going to start in chapter 52. Now, the passage that we're covering, 52.13 through the end of chapter 53, comprises the fourth and final servant song. You may remember a couple of weeks ago when we met remotely over the internet that a portion of the scripture we looked at that time was the third servant song. You may be asking, well, what's the big deal with all these servant songs that we've been covering lately? Well, in verse 1 of chapter 49, and you don't have to turn there, I'll I'll summarize it for you, but chapter 49 is the first servant song, and in the very first verse, we're introduced to the servant. And it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations." That verse essentially sums up why this servant is a big deal. He is the servant whom is chosen and supported by God who will ultimately be responsible for bringing justice to the nations. And that theme is carried out throughout the rest of the servant songs, which are Isaiah 49 and chapter 50 and in our passage this morning. 
But again and again in each of these songs, we see a servant chosen by God, supported by God, who will ultimately bring in salvation. Now, for the ancient Israelites, that itself wasn't too surprising because they were hoping for salvation and for a deliverer. But what was surprising about some of these songs were the way that the servant was going to go about and accomplish this. For instance, that there are references to the fact that the servant will not just make things right or bring salvation for the Israelites, but for the nations, as we just read. And there is also this building theme throughout these songs that the servant is not going to accomplish this through power or force, but rather through obedient suffering. And that's contrary to what you might expect. Now, in the previous three servant songs, these themes that were generally introduced and somewhat opaque are made clear here in this fourth and final one. Everything comes together. It's it's kind of like reading Charles Dickens. Anybody enjoy Charles Dickens? Anybody? Okay, I see. Thank you. Yes. All right. Charles Dickens wrote some famous novels like David Copperfield and Oliver Twist. And he's, he's famous for introducing elements in his novels that don't quite make sense. But then at the end, he brings it all together and you finally understand it. You know, I remember the first of his novels I read, Great Expectations. And I'm not going to give it away, but I got to the end and I was like, whoa, I did not see that coming. But it all makes so much sense now. Well, Dickens must have taken a clue from Isaiah because this fourth servant song brings the themes of all the previous three together and he fully fleshes out the details that were somewhat opaque at first. So, the first six verses of this passage are basically form the introduction and we are introduced to God's plan of salvation, which is the servant. So let's read 52, starting with verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We're going to stop there for a minute. The way Isaiah crafted these introductory verses is truly amazing. First, note the contrast between the beginning of this introduction, the first verse, and the end of this introduction, which is verse 3 of chapter 53. In the first verse, we find God's view of the servant. And that is exalted, chosen by God, lifted up. 
But then at the end of this introduction, in verse 3 of chapter 53, we find man's view of the servant, which is despised and rejected. It says that we esteemed him not. So from the very beginning of this passage, Isaiah is making it clear that this servant is not going to be what we expect. In fact, he will not even be recognized for what he truly is, despite God's exaltation of him. So that's the contrast between God's view of the servant and man's view of the servant. Now, let's move up a level, and we can note the comparison Isaiah makes regarding the appearance and form of the servant. So look at verses 52-14 and the second half of 53-2, which again is kind of just moving up a level in that introduction. There, Isaiah emphasizes that this servant had nothing about him that would seemingly make him capable of bringing justice to the nations. Not only was his form not majestic or beautiful, but it was marred. Again, we know this servant is Jesus. He did not come into the world under pomp and circumstance or with thundering legions. He came instead as a tiny baby and was visited not by kings, but by shepherds and spent his life as a carpenter. And as he was crucified, his form was so marred that he didn't appear human. This is not what we would expect from somebody bringing salvation. You get the feeling that with this contrast of views and this focus on form and appearance, that Isaiah is wanting us to remember back to Israel's first and second kings. The first king of Israel was King Saul, who we could read about standing a head taller than everybody else. And he was handsome and majestic, and people looked at him and wanted him to be king. But how did that end? Well, very poorly, as Saul ended up rejecting Yahweh and leading the nation into disobedience. So God told the prophet Samuel to go anoint a new king from one of the sons of a man named Jesse. So Samuel went, and the son stood before him. And we can read in 1 Samuel 16 that when the sons came, Samuel looked at the oldest, the first, Eliab, and thought, that's him. He looks like a king. Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on what? The heart. So then, after rejecting all of Jesse's sons, he finally asks, is there any more? And they're like, yeah, the youngest is out in the field, but, you know, you probably don't want him. Samuel said, bring him up. So he stands before, and God told Samuel, that's him. And then David went on to become the greatest of Israel's earthly kings. So Isaiah is reminding us that form and appearance are no indication of success, and that God exalting someone despite the fact that they might not look the part is nothing new in Israel's history. In fact, he did it with the Israelites themselves. In verse 14 of chapter 52, Isaiah makes a comparison by saying, as many were astonished at you. Isaiah says God exalting this servant is like God exalting you, the Israelites. You weren't chosen because you were the biggest or the strongest. In fact, you were often the weakest and outnumbered by your enemies. Rather, 
you were chosen because it was God's choice. In other words, you were exalted as God's chosen despite your lowly appearance. And the same is true for the servant. But from man's perspective, because of the servant's appearance, men end up rejecting him. So we have the contrast between God's view and man's view. Then we have the comparison. And then in the middle of this introduction, we have the purpose of the servant. Starting in verse 15, we read that he will sprinkle many nations. That's a reference to holy water, right? He goes, sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle. You're good. Bad joke, sorry. No. (laughs) Now, commentators generally agree that This means the servant is going to disrupt the nations because this world, as represented by the kings, will eventually realize who this servant is and what he does. So though rejected initially, what he will accomplish will impact the entire world. And eventually the entire world will take notice. And they'll take notice because chapter 53, verse 1 To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah is presenting the servant as the arm of the Lord. And the arm of the Lord has always been a metaphor for God's salvation. But here, he's not presented as just bringing salvation for the people of Israel, but somehow in a way that will impact the entire world. We'll learn more about that later on in this passage. Now, before we move on, notice just one more thing. We talked about how Isaiah is likely wanting us to remember back to, to, to God's not looking on the outward appearance and choosing David as king. We'll jump down to 53 verse 2. It says that he grew up, that is the servant, before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is a clear reference to the root of Jesse, the son of David. The servant is not just a servant. He is also the Davidic king. And in keeping with the line of David, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, at least in comparison to others. So this servant is the long-awaited Davidic king bringing justice to the world. So now let's take a step back and look at this introduction in its entirety. Because it essentially builds up and up and up and hypes you up. And then it seemingly falls away. Because we start with this chosen servant who is chosen despite not looking the part. But we find that he is going to shake the whole earth as the prophesied son of David, bringing God's arm of salvation. We're like, this is great. But then we fall away as we learn that despite who he is and what he's going to do, he's rejected by men because he has no former majesty. This is the servant that we are introduced to. And the rest of the servant's song here describes how he brings about that salvation because, like his appearance, it does not seem to make sense. So the first six verses introduce the servant. The next three describe the curse of the servant. Verse 3 sets the stage by describing him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But then verse 4 through 6 explain why that is. So let's read, starting with verse 4 of chapter 53. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I'm going to pause there for a minute. From those verses, we learn that the servant is suffering because of us. It says that he took our griefs and our sorrows because he took our punishment, the chastisement, for our transgressions and our iniquities. He took our sin. And that's bad, but it gets worse because we didn't even realize that's what he was doing. We thought in verse 4 that he was just cursed and smitten and stricken by God. We didn't connect the dots that it was because of us that he was like that. Paul in the New Testament often refers to the mystery of the gospel. This is the mystery of the gospel that we cannot understand unless God reveals it to us. Namely, that Jesus, the servant, bore our sin and our punishment. Isaiah is making it abundantly clear that the suffering of the servant Jesus is our fault. And to be honest, that's something that we need to hear today. Because we are constantly tempted to make our sin out to be not that bad, right? I mean, whether we compare it to quote-unquote worse sins, I mean, it's just a lie. It's not like I killed anyone. Or we think that, hey, it's not hurting anybody else. Why does it matter? Or we justify it as, God understands. He made me this way. Or it's just a word. It's just a picture or whatever. We try to sanitize our sin and the consequences of it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this cheap grace the failure to realize the immense gravity of our sins. Isaiah seeks to destroy that line of thinking. It says the servant was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Brothers and sisters, do not take sin lightly. Yes, we have been forgiven from it, if you do believe in the servant, Jesus Christ, but it is deadly. Unless we think, well, maybe some people are that bad, but but not me. We have verse 6 that says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So do not dilute the evilness of sin, nor your part in it. But on the flip side, also don't doubt the completeness of what Jesus did. Verse 5, Isaiah gives us a taste of this. And he really expounds on it at the end. But he says, the chastisement does bring us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Amen. What the suffering did, or what the suffering servant did was complete. It's not that he took our chastisement, or he was wounded, and now we have to do X, Y, and Z. It's he did this, and it's done. So don't make light of your sin, but also don't dwell on it. 
Now, in considering this, observe the tenses in this passage. And actually, we're just going to look at a small part of this passage, but this week I'd encourage you to read the whole passage and look at the tenses and how the tenses change, because it's very interesting. But look at the tenses and consider when Isaiah wrote this, about 700 years before Jesus, the servant, was born. And yet, the tenses of what the servant has gone through and accomplished are not future tense, but rather past tense. It says, he has borne our griefs. He was pierced for our transgressions, and more. So how can Isaiah say that when Jesus hasn't done it yet? It's because Isaiah understood this servant as a promise of God, and a promise of God is as good as done. In Hebrews eleven thirteen, we read about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah. And it says that they all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them and embraced them. People wonder how the people of the Old Testament could be saved without knowing Jesus. Well, they did know Jesus. Isaiah shows us that here. They just didn't know as much about Jesus as we know. But they did know that they had the promise of God and were relying on him for their salvation and forgiveness of sins and not on themselves. Now, that promise was ultimately realized in the person of Jesus Christ. So trusting in the promise of God is trusting in Christ. And that's one of the main premises of the book of Hebrews. But we can stand on the promises of God with faith. So what the servant did is presented in past tense, but his healing is in the present tense. He says, with his wounds, we are healed. Again, what he did was complete for all of time. If we look back again to Hebrews, he says that Jesus didn't have to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, that is Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So though he died 700 years or so after Isaiah, his future wounds still wrought healing and salvation. And though he died 2,000 years ago for us, his past wounds are still bringing about healing and salvation. What he did was complete. So that's verses 4 through 6, where we see the curse of the servant, which we learn is really our curse that was laid upon the servant. In verses 7 through 9, we see the judgment that is leveled on the servant. Starting with verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off or cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, 
although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. We read that the judgment on the servant ultimately led to his death. He was cut off from the land of the living. Jesus experienced the full wrath of God when he was hanging on the cross. He died. And Isaiah highlights the unjust nature of this judgment. Verse 8, he was stricken not for his own transgressions, but for the transgressions of my people. Verse 9 says that he suffered this, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. But during this unjust judgment, it also says that he was obedient. This again is a theme that we have seen in the previous servant songs, especially the third that the servant remains obedient and righteous through unjust persecution. In these verses that we just read, Isaiah mentions twice that he opened not his mouth. And then in verse 9, that no deceit was found in his mouth. We think of Jesus standing silent before his accusers at the Sanhedrin and then silent before Pontius Pilate during this trial. He didn't defend himself. The only thing that he did say rightly was that he is the son of God and the true king of the Jews. Now let's move on to the last three verses, verses 10 through 12. Because we've been introduced to the servant who is God's plan for salvation. We saw the curse that was laid on the servant and the judgment leveled against the servant. But now we have an amazing conclusion because we conclude with the salvation wrought by the servant. Verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Just a minute. It says that in the the first part of this verse, we see Isaiah repeating his emphasis on this being the will of the Lord. He reinforces the point that the suffering and judgment leveled against the servant was not an accident or merely the result of an evil world but rather this was God's plan. This is the arm of the Lord bringing salvation. And the salvation now is emphasized three times in these three verses. And each time it is connected to the faithfulness of the servant, specifically him offering his soul. Look with me at the rest of verse 10 for the first emphasis on salvation. It says, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Again, here it's a little vague as to what Isaiah is saying. But we see that when the servant, his soul makes an offering, he shall see his offspring. Now that's interesting because we learned in the previous verse that he's going to be cut off from the land of the living. But yet he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That sounds like salvation. Let's look at the next instance in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now it's a little clear. The righteous one will make many righteous because he shall bear their iniquities. That's salvation, taking our sin and making us righteous. Now let's look at the third instance in verse 12. 
Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Finally, we see that the servant will be glorified because he was faithful unto death where he bore our sins and made intercession. In other words, as we read earlier in Hebrews, he was like a priest going before God on behalf of the people and offering a sacrifice for their sins. But instead of offering an animal, he offered himself. And because of that, and because he was faithful and obedient through that, the servant has been glorified and we have salvation. So how do we respond to a passage like this? I mean, it's amazing and it's beautiful and it's so much fun to explore it and by God's grace understand it. But how should this affect us? Well, I'd argue that it should affect us in the same way that this passage was intended to affect those in Isaiah's day. Remember, Isaiah didn't write this passage to us or even for us. By God's sovereignty, it is for us and we can read it. But in its original context, it was for a people in captivity who were longing for the salvation that had been promised to them. So what would they have taken from it? Two things. First, through this passage, we are meant to embrace the servant. In Isaiah's day, it was to look forward to a servant who would come and accomplish this. But because promises are as good as done, it's as if it was already accomplished. See, Isaiah wasn't primarily telling his ancient audience how God was going to accomplish his salvation. He was saying, God's going to do this. So embrace the servant who brings salvation, and that salvation can be yours. And not just salvation from physical captivity, but salvation from the ultimate captors, sin and death. Embrace the servant who takes our sin, bears its punishment, and in its place gives us healing and righteousness. Have you embraced the servant today? And I don't mean, do you just believe that this passage is true and you understand why God did it and you identify as a Christian? But have you staked your entire life on it so much that your only hope in life and death is Christ? In this passage, we find the one who has solved our biggest problem, sin, the problem we could never solve. Have you embraced him? Have you embraced him so much that you zealously pursue holiness and avoid sin? Not because you're just trying to do the right thing, but because you feel the weight of him being pierced for your transgressions and crushed for your iniquities. And you love him and the thought of him undergoing that hurts. But most importantly, have you embraced the servant such that when you stand before the infinitely holy God and he looks at your sin you'll instead see the righteousness of Christ who bore your iniquities. 
have you embraced the servant? Secondly, for those who have embraced the servant, this passage is meant to get us to embrace our calling. Again, this was a passage for people in captivity. And though they were to look to the salvation the servant would bring, the servant was also presented as someone pleasing to God whom they should follow and imitate. We don't have time to examine all of the references to the servant's teachings in these servant songs, but the ancient Israelites would have understood this, that they were to imitate the servant, especially or primarily his obedient suffering. That was their calling, to accept the will of God and remain obedient through suffering. And that is our call as well. In fact, when the servant came to this earth, he said we should expect it as his followers. In John 15, 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. But the beauty he also gives us in Matthew 5, 10, where he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, unjustly, on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we bear up and remain obedient under persecution, God uses that to accomplish amazing things. This is how God works. It's not how we would expect him to, and if we're honest, it's probably not how we would prefer him to. And yet, we see it again and again throughout this book and throughout the history of the church. When we walk in the footsteps of he who bore our sin to make us righteous by remaining obedient through suffering, it shows the world how great a treasure we truly have. And it shows the world how great our God is like nothing else can. So embrace the servant and embrace your calling. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Lord, we thank you for preserving it for us that we can read it and study it today just as the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip did roughly 2,000 years ago. Lord, we thank you for the servant. For the servant who was willing to bear our iniquities. Lord, to give us the righteousness that we could never earn or achieve. Lord, we thank you for the servant who has already done this and we can live in it today. Father, I pray that we would not leave here the same way, but Lord, that you would increase our love for you and for your servant, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would also make that love so profound and make your glory so evident to us that we are able to bear up under persecution and show the world 
how amazing you are. We praise you, God, for who you are and for what you've done and for your servant, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.